0: From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Mary.
1: Hello, hello. We are back again with the Lowlander, picking out our favourite articles and news updates from the regular service letter that was sent out to the men of the 52nd Lowland Division between the 12th and 19th of February 1945.
0: Indeed, but there's not much news this week, as in we only have three days worth of Lowlander sheets. However, there's quite a bit going on in Europe still, uh, so you just want to remind us what's going on elsewhere.
1: Well, this week was the bombing of Dresden again. We'd got the Mostar Operation, which ended in victory for the Yugoslav Partisans, about which I know very little. Um, The Battle of Iwo Jima began with American troops under Spruance. And then uh, this was the week in which the British SAS, the Special Air Service, started Operation Cold Comfort, which began with a drop just north of Verona in Italy. Unsuccessful, though. So shall we find out where the jocks are?
0: Well, you remember from last week we were talking about Operation Veritable, um, and we're still in Operation Veritable now, which is the first Canadian army's operation to clear the Rhineland and the Reichswald Forest. And the 52nd Lowland Division are actually going to join the other two Scottish divisions in 21st Army Group this week. Um, That's the 15th Scottish and the 51st Highland Division. And it's the only time really in the war that they've all been together in the same place. So the 15th Scottish, they cleared the city of Cleve, uh, or Cleve, um, on the 11th, and then the 51st Highland Division, not long after that, clear the the Dutch town of Genep. Um, now, they've secured that, and then passing through them, on around about the 16th of February, is the 52nd Lowland Division, and they're on the extreme left flank of the whole of this operation. They're they are on the side where the river mass is. And what they're going to do is they're going to clear a large forest called the Broderbosch. You might know, also know it as Aphrodon Woods, because there's a little village called Aphrodon and a couple of the brigades in the division clear that woods. It's very heavy fighting. They're fighting against German Fallschirmjager, the German parachute regiments. It's incredibly intensive fighting, and eventually they become stuck on the edge of this wood, and they can't really move for about a week afterwards because the fighting is so hard and so difficult. And one of the things that that, um, that slow them up is this castle, and it sticks out in the middle of no man's land between the two forests. It's called the Castle Bleisenbeck, and in there are some German makers. And really, they stay at like that for the rest of this week, and in fact, onto next week as well. And it takes attacks by uh, typhoons and Spitfires bombing that before they can move forward. So it's all go, and then all of a sudden it grinds to a halt. And that's where we find the jocks.
1: That sounds like a commando comic in the making. Should we dive straight in then and find out what's going on in the newsletter? Because these guys must be getting updates about all of this action all the time.
0: Yeah, they are. Yeah. Let's dive in.
1: Brilliant. 14th of February 1945, I'm going to start by looking at a map that takes up about half of the front cover of the Lowlander. It's a map of Central Europe, and it's divided into two with a very graphic tear down in the middle. And I think what it's trying to show us here is the, the immense distance the Allies have now covered, because on the left-hand side, we've got Germany, Mannheim, Karlsruhe, um, what else have we got on there, Cologne, and then The other side of the graphic tear, we've got Frankfurt and going all the way across Prague, Pilsen, all across to Bielsko and Breslau Mm -hmm. on the right hand side there. So this is just it's not even actually showing us who's where or what's going on. It's just showing the progress of the Allies and the fact that we've we've gone so far.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to work out how much of Germany they've cut out the middle. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that much. It's not, they've not got, and and actually, if you notice what they've done, it's a really, it's actually quite an accurate map. They've obviously traced it off of something, off a newspaper report. But if you see, they've got lots of little dots, that is actually where the units are. So when we show it, if you want to go on Twitter to have a look at it, you'll actually see the the area where the Allies are advancing, they've dotted it. And then, Uh, and the same as the Soviets. Now, what's interesting, you can see the Soviets' main effort. They're all pointing towards Berlin, whereas on the Allied front, it's a much more of that straight line, which is, of course, traditionally the way uh, the Supreme Allied Commander Eisenhower wanted to fight his battle, which is small, little bits, biting little chunks off, keeping it all straight and, and nice and neat, whereas the Russians just going, Berlin, let's go.
1: Oh yeah, no, I can see what you mean now. We've got yeah. that Soviet. We've got that Soviet salient there,
0: haven't but we? It, it's a yeah. So yes, and it's and it, it actually it's not far from Berlin at all. It's re- on the river. Yeah. Is I can't actually make out what that river is. It's not the order because the order isn't that side. Um, but you also see on the top left-hand corner, when you see this map, you see what I mean? They've got the town of Arnhem, Nijmegen, Cleaver and Goch. Now, Cleaver and Goch, we were just talking about because that's part of Operation Veritable. Yes. But that is where the, ally, that's where the British and the Canadians are. And then all the rest of that side is the Americans and the French. And it just shows you how big the American army is compared to the British army. Um, that's a really small area the British are in. Um, and these are all names that we should all be familiar with. Um, if you know anything about the Second World War,
1: picking up again on on the, on the date at the top right hand side there again, it being Valentine's Day, which I know, I know they would you know talked about whilst they were over there. But yep. this is Volume Two. This is number one hundred and nine. Oh, mm. what now does that mean? <laughs> well, I don't know because it's just occurred to me there haven't been one hundred and nine sheets, have there?
0: Well, this is gonna this is gonna kick off an investigation because I wonder if the Lowlander. So we only have copies when they're in Northwest Europe, so we've really only got them from about uh middle of November 1944. This would suggest that perhaps they've started sooner than that. So I think we might have to go back into the archives and have a mooch.
1: Yes indeed.
0: Fourteenth of February, nineteen forty-five. Censorship. The two hundred and fifty censors at Shafe have read 100 million words submitted by war correspondents since D-Day. This is the equivalent to 1,700 novels.
1: Now, nah. let's just leave the novels aside for a Yeah, that's a,
0: that's a weird <laughs> measurement. We'll come back to that.
1: It's, it's like, I don't know, football pitches or something. You've got to know how big your pitches to start with. So 100 million words submitted to Shave since D-Day. That's seven months at this point in time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. yeah. So there were 250 censors, which means they were reading, what, 4 million words each? Yeah. Okay so if you're a slow reader then you'll read probably somewhere around 170 180 words a minute. Yeah so that, that's 100 me. so 100,000 words will take you about 10 11 hours. Yeah. So that means that each one had been reading for about 15 days non-stop which which is fine. But let's let's add some more numbers into this. So there were 996 correspondents submitting their work through Shafe at this point. Yeah. Okay. And by this time, the three army groups were handling something somewhere around 13 million words a month. PR copy on its own was about 9 million words. And then there's... There was a scrutiny job as well. So everybody was looking at the domestic press to see what was either being seeded there by foreign operatives Mm -hmm. or just checking what was actually getting to the press. That was about another 44 million words. And then on top of that, the Shafe sensors were also looking at amateur film, still pictures, movies Mm -hmm. and, and photographs that were coming in from all over. it's it's an absolutely fascinating job what they have to do because they, they act like referees. They've got to keep a flow of information going to, to everybody's at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And they've got to make sure that's as complete as possible. And, there's a there's a kind of sense of duty to keep people engaged. They say there's you know no such thing as bad news, but what they are trying to do is to raise morale. And yeah. yet at the same time, the other side of the coin is that they're also trying to protect the forces against all disclosures that would aid the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this this sounds fairly straightforward, but you think just how how difficult it is to be a censor and read something and work out which side of the line that falls on.
0: All right. Well, well, it's open to huge amount of Subjective, sort yeah, of, uh, differences between each sensor. Surely,
1: yeah. I mean, the, the the archetypal examples are that in Normandy, a chateau is quite a common description. Yeah. So, but do you leave the word chateau in there mm. because it's common, or do you yeah. do you have to make a judgment call at to what point the white chateau standing against the pine trees on the side of the mm. north facing hillside becomes a problem? Now, there there were lots of um, examples where the sensors. Made life changing decisions. There's um there's -hmm. an example in Okinawa where an American correspondent had spoken to two Japanese journalists who told him the war was lost, and those those sent information off through Shafe. Somebody will call me if if I got this wrong. That's right. But but the censors then took those Japanese journalists' names out. Before sending the information across to Washington, because from them onwards, I mean, the, the names had to be given to Shafe mm. to establish credibility. But from there on in, upwards and outwards, sharing those names would have meant a death sentence. So there was this constant um, adjudication going on. Yeah. It, it wasn't just "oh, you can't say that," but it was it was a real judgment call as to what could be said, where and when. And the mm. the, the the other big example of um, the I suppose the remit and the, their reach was policy censorship at the mm. beginning of the war. So it wasn't just about, um, oh, you can't mention the name of that place or that person or what's going on. There were the much higher, far more far-reaching um, ideals at stake. And any the, the example here is that any material that was critical of Admiral Darlan, the, mm-hmm. the Frenchman, the Vichy Defence Minister, yeah. um, it, it was all completely taken out. Because um, there, there was a, a huge debate as to just what was going to happen if Darlan's plan came to fruition because Clark had met with him and negotiated a ceasefire yeah okay and and the, the agreement came about that all of torture's immediate objectives could be realized. we could have the French African army joining forces with us with, with mm. the allies. Um, we could we could see Allied cargoes um, being unloaded in North Africa without any problems, but in return, what Darlan wanted was to be High Commissioner of North mm. Africa. Yeah. Now, now, that put Eisenhower in a complete fix in the press mm. because, and if, if he agreed with Darlan, then he'd be working with a man who everybody knew had got really strong ties with Hitler. Yeah. But on the on the other command, on the other hand. If he didn't work with him, then the entire North African campaign would be going up against this this potential um, flare-up of vicious resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the newspaper editors, particularly in England, were they were absolutely outraged. that They've got to try and mask this this sort of change of opinion. Yeah. So so Eisenhower's political bosses, Roosevelt and Churchill, they defended the decision on on the grounds of military necessity temporarily. But as far as the press was concerned, as far as the censors acting on um, press reports coming back from North Africa, there was a limitation as to how much of this was known by the public at the time. It was it was all fairly academic because Darlan was assassinated on December the twenty-fourth, nineteen forty-two. Oh. But but he was assassinated by a student who wanted to restore the French monarchy, and he had been following Dalin's progress in whatever news was available, so so it just comes, you know, the, the pigeons come home to roost. Really, yeah. censors are absolutely the adjudicators of life or death.
0: Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, that sounds very unfrench-like to be fighting amongst themselves. Um, the the interesting thing is is sometimes, and we've looked through some of the newspapers during this time. Um, and often they'll report on a town that was captured the day before, and you think, well, yeah. how does that get through the censor?" Like Valdfeuth is a really good example we've talked about before. How does that get through the censor when yeah. the Germans know where that is? Um, and, of course, the other side of censorship is uh, not covered in this report, is the censorship by um, the platoon commanders and the troop commanders of uh, the soldier's mail and correspondence, yeah. which is yeah, going yeah. on. And you think the numbers there are swelling, but every single soldier that sends... A letter home; it has to be censored by his officer. That goes up to his company commander and so forth uh, before it gets sent back. I mean, that's a that's hurt, unmeasurable almost because some people are writing every single day, and in fact, it's a huge burden for young platoon commanders who are tired. They've got lots of stuff done, but they've got to sit down and they've got to go through and censor that mail and make sure it's um, it's not giving anything away.
1: It's, it's a constant source of amazement to me: this, the the fluidity and the 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 vast amounts of information that's actually mm. travelling around in different I'm not talking I'm not talking about you know carriers strapped to pigeons legs mm. I'm ta- I'm talking about the 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 reams of information that's travelling backwards and forwards at a very slow pace relatively to what we yeah. you know consider today and the scope for information to leak here there and everywhere was mm. just phenomenal in in some ways it's it's a minor miracle that anything got done
0: yeah And, of course, somebody in the 52nd is is also censoring the Lowlander.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: But but that's for another time. (laughs) (laughs) Meryn was talking absolute bollocks here. Okinawa censorship, of course, does not come under Shafe, which is Europe. Okinawa censorship comes under Pacific Ocean Theatre Command, under Admiral Nimitz.
1: 14th of February 1945. The requisitioning of land bill came up for its second reading today. The bill has already been changed somewhat from its original form, but the Chancellor of the Exchequer, in presenting the bill, emphasised that it did not apply to open spaces and commons as had been suggested by its critics. On this assurance, the Labour Party agreed to give their support.
0: Requisitioning of what land?
1: So so this is to do with um, open spaces, green spaces, mm-hmm. and it kind of has a connection to um, common land. Mm. Okay. But the, I, think, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to just have a quick look at this was we're starting to see a flavor of not political influence, but... Um, just, just more mentions of what's going on politically at mm. home. So yeah. bear in mind that we're ramping up towards the end of the war. There's an imminent change coming in in government. There's got to be a change in government coming in. Well, There's a general
0: election coming up, isn't there?
1: Well, yeah, and, and you think about the number of men that are coming home to what they don't know. It's um, I, I just wonder how much political influence and how much, how much sway newsletters like this actually had. Well,
0: the interesting thing is, this is entirely what the um, divisional newspapers are for. Yeah. The idea is that you're giving the men, uh, in a respectful way, information that they can keep up to date with. It's a different army. It's not an old army that's been, you know, taken from the from the peasant stock, and they've got to stand there behind a you know a wooden pike or whatever. These are um, citizen soldiers that have been drafted into the army or conscripted into the army, and they have to buy into it. And part of that is giving them the right information in a newsletter or a newspaper and discussing it with them so they know what they're fighting for and also they've got something to um, something to look forward to. Of course, you've got the Beverage Report, which came out before this. Yeah. There's obviously a feeling a sense that the Labour Party are going to be offering something different. Um, you know, and we all know what happens once they get into power, the creation of welfare state and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, unlike the end of the First World War, where it was uh, home fit for heroes, which just never happened, this is really important stuff. They will have remembered their dads, you know, talking about stuff and their mums talking about this stuff. But this is different. This is saying. Other people have got an interest in you when you get home, and you know this is what your options are when it comes to voting. And of course, um, the Labour Party w- was voted in.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- I mean, in itself, this is quite an innocuous bit of reporting. It's about the land that um, oh, I don't know air- airfields or factories have been built on over the mm. last three or four years, and it's basically stating what what this bill will try and do mm. is make sure that that land goes back to the the, the original owner and the taxpayers don't get. Burden with a massive, great bill for the the transition into a war state and back again. Um, yeah. It's just, I just, it's really interesting that we're starting to see these mentions of the Labour Party has agreed mm. to give their support. It's just, just a little bit, little bit of positioning going. Don't forget, on, Tommy, what I'm saying
0: Tommy McAtkins has a vote.
1: Nicey <laughs> Atkins, come here, will you, man? Yes, sir. How can I help, sir? Do you see those
0: chaps over there? Where, sir? Those chaps there, about a hundred yards away,
1: next to the corpse. Er, can't see any men standing next to a dead body, sir, but it's early in the day. Atkins, you blithering idiot, I don't mean dead bodies, I mean a corpse, a
0: small group of trees. Yes, sir. Go and find out what they're up to, there's a bloody war on.
1: right sir. Back in a moment. sir, they're on a battlefield tour. A battlefield tour? We're in the
0: middle of a bloody battle, man. Go over there and find out the details of this battlefield tour.
1: Right, sir. One moment. Okay, sir, they're on a battlefield tour, following in the footsteps of Peter White and his jocks.
0: That's not enough information, you blithering idiot. Go over there and find out all the details and bring them back Sharpish.
1: Right, sir. You wait there, sir, and I'll be back in a moment. Tour. It's the 11th, the 14th of October. They are following in the footsteps of the 52nd Lowland Division, and I humbly suggest if you would like to find out any more, you go online to walkingwiththedocks.co.uk Don't worry, sir. Bloody good, show Atkins. Good job. 15th of
0: February, 1945. Blows from the east, West, north, and south. The Crimea promise is being fulfilled. The first combined Allied assault, foreshadowed by the conference, has been struck, and Dresden has borne the brunt of it. The city stands on the path of Konyev's onrush, a centre of military and civil administration, a junction for many railways, and a resting place for thousands of refugees. On Tuesday night, 800 RAF bombers swooped on the target and, meeting little flak, dropped 650,000 incendiaries as well as many high-explosive bombs. Late reports show that bombers from Italy were also very active yesterday over Vienna and South Austria, and that the hopes of a good day's hunting for the 2nd Tactical Air Force were amply justified. The second of 1,400 sorties supporting the 1st Canadian Army at Cleaver destroyed 80 locomotives, 220 railway trucks and 130 motor vehicles.
1: So it was quite successful then.
0: Yeah. Is that... is that... The Dresden Raid.
1: Yeah, I I think it might be the Dresden Raid. Yeah, yeah,
0: because six hundred and fifty thousand incendiaries. There's a lot.
1: It is. I'd have to double check the dates, but it's it's Cleve that catches my eye. Do mm. you know why? Do you know why we kept attacking Cleve?
0: Um. I, well, my, my understanding is because the Germans wouldn't give it up.
1: It There was something better than that. Cleve was um, where they'd got one of the two radio stations that served the what's it called the Knickerbine.
0: Okay. Navigation
1: system. So mm-hmm. the the Luftwaffe, their bombers used to use radio signals from Cleve. Mm-hmm. And there was a the second station at Solberg, Stolberg, mm-hmm. to um, to navigate across to Britain. The yeah. the I keep saying Knickerbine, but it is its Knickerbine system.
0: <laughs> <No>. oh, <yeah. laughs>
1: was eventually jammed by the Allies and yeah. replaced by a higher frequency system. Yeah, um, which was located on the coast, up 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 on the, the up on the French coast. But yeah, no, we we took Cleve out because we wanted to get rid of the, the the navigation system, and of course, um, it was Horrocks who um had to live with the decision to to bomb Cleve.
0: Yeah, so Cleve and got now if you've and we've been there. If you've been to cleaver and Goch nowadays, it's very much like Stevenage. Um, all the buildings are in the 1960s, and there's a very good reason for that, um, because, of course, the towns were completely destroyed um, during the fight in the Reichswald, um, the Reichswald battle and Operation Veritable. Um, and in fact, it, it ended up actually not helping because the streets were so badly damaged that the vehicles and the armour couldn't move through it and it also provided such a good environment and terrain for the Germans to defend you know they had loads of um, areas which they could hide and it was providing all sorts of protection very similar to Monte Cassino and all those other things and in fact one of the outcomes for from Operation Veritable was that we really shouldn't just bomb a city if we're going to assault it because it actually gives the enemy much much greater advantage
1: Mm um Horrocks um was it in World at War that he said that um bombing Cleves was, was one of the most terrible decisions he'd ever taken in his life
0: Yeah absolutely and not only because of the civilian population which i'm sure troubled him, but also Cleves was one of the most um sort of iconic medieval towns in Germany and it was one of yeah. the one of the best preserved so there was there was all that it was kind of like um Coventry, and of course, if we see Coventry, actually, Coventry is a really good example. Coventry today looks all you know, nineteen sixties modern architecture, but actually, it was one of the most amazing medieval cities in Britain until the Germans bombed it. So it was very similar there, Um, and and of course, the civilians as well, which were which were you know, large numbers of them killed.
1: Two two bumper facts here. One of them is fairly fairly obvious. One perhaps isn't. Anne of Cleves came from Cleve.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, we know that one.
1: (laughs) Really? <laughs> yeah, really. But I always forget that because because we pronounce it Cleaver and we don't say Anne of Cleaver. We say Anne of Cleves. And yeah. the other the other one, funnily enough, in terms of um, language, is Coventryet is a German word meaning to raise to the ground.
0: Oh, oh, that's Isn't a bit that's, that's awkward. I
1: know it is. you going
0: to I thought you were going to say, going to say there's a Janet of Goch, but no, no, it's a
1: bit. <laughs> 15th of February, 1945. Hotter and hotter. Dragons in the fairy tales were always a safe bet for a nice spot of fire belching. But the old fashioned dragon has nothing on the modern crocodile. It was about a fortnight ago when some Cosbys were forming up for an attack that their company commander had an idea it might be a good thing to show his men just how terrifying these monsters can be. With the help of the croc commander, he laid on a short demonstration. Having explained how demoralising the weapon is and the need to follow up quickly, he selected a target, a deserted house nearby. For some seconds, the crocodile blazed away. There was no doubt about its effect. The commander was impressed and his men were impressed too. But there were others on whom the impression was even more pronounced. Because from that empty, deserted house emerging with their hands above their heads and dejection on their faces came 23 Bosch burning to go
0: Uh, and on behalf of Andy and Merrin at the Lowlander podcast I'd like to apologize to any listeners who were former members of the King's Own Scottish Borders we use the word Cosby which we understand is deeply offensive to you and we apologize indeed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we had to get that in that's an official statement because Cosby is the worst thing you can call
1: oh no, I and know
0: and maybe we'll talk about that one day um, uh, yeah Ch- Ch- Crocodile Churchill I mean that, wh- what a bit of kit that is it's absolutely terrifying um,
1: what was it, it fueled by?
0: well it had a it was a sort of mixture of petroleum uh, napalm jelly uh, and some rubber and it, and it fired a jet around about 120 yards 110 meters some really? people say you could get it up to about 140 meters but really? generally the range was about 80 80 yards 73 meters um, and it and it fired at a rate of about 18 liters per second and it was terrifying in fact it's it, it's kind of a terror weapon in that yeah obviously it can get into you and if, if it got into you, you know, if you were a German in a bunker or a building and it got in, it would find its way into the building through the nooks and crannies and it would be horrendous. Mm-hmm. But quite often, and as you mentioned, there are people coming out, uh, surrendering. You hear lots and lots of reports. Peter White talks about it, where people see the Churchill and they just put their hands up and say, right, no, that's it. I've had enough. Um, and they were, they were part of the 79th Armoured Division, which was the Specialist Armoured Division in, oh. in the British Army. And uh, they had numerous other specialist tanks, but there was a there was a whole regiment of Churchill um, Churchill crocodiles, and they would be used for assault tasks if you were taking on the likes of Cleave and Goch, um, or or doing a particularly difficult clearance of woods, and you would break out the crocodile Churchills, and and yeah, not very nice at all.
1: So so here's another technical question. Fair enough, you don't know, but you talk about it going 120. Was that feet or meters?
0: So it's 120 yards.
1: 100, oh, okay, or 110
0: metres um, or but some people say if you got it right you could get it up to about 150 yards or 140 metres
1: and presumably they carried a, a separate reservoir of fuel to burn.
0: Yeah, so the, the reservoir of fuel was at, fuel was actually in a, in a trailer attached to the, the back at the rear of the tank, um, and it would take. It didn't take long to to empty. It only took a few minutes to empty, so you'd fire it in short bursts. Um, yeah, and refueling took around about ninety minutes, and then they would have to build up Did the it? pressure, which took another fifteen minutes. So you'd use them sparingly. But generally speaking, once they were used a couple of times, the Germans' uh, infantry would normally just throw up their hands and surrender. Um-
1: Okay, so, so so that that I think is the point I'm coming to, which is if you've got a crocodile traveling down this slope towards you, or all its glorious fire ablazing, that's one thing. But actually they actually needed some planning to get them in to do their job, didn't yeah, they? Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, definitely. You
1: couldn't you couldn't just say, Oh we'll take the crocodile over there and do its work. You'd you'd got to work out, you'd got to be there with enough fuel, pressure had got to be up, etc.
0: Exactly, and it would be used as a part of a combined arms operation, so you wouldn't just have a crocodile, you'd have infantry, you'd probably have some yeah. armour supporting them, and the other specialist uh, tanks of the 79th Armour, so for example you'd have something like a Churchill Avery, or armoured vehicle, Royal Engineers, which would have things like fascines, which are bundles of sticks on top to cross gaps, or yes. bridging tanks, so you'd have all these things, so... You know, you wouldn't just use a Churchill crocodile on its own, or not certainly not without infantry supporting them to stop the Germans. Because of course, the other thing about a Churchill a crocodile tank is it would be a priority target for the enemy as well. If they could see it, they would normally want to knock it out fairly quickly.
1: Did the Germans have crocodiles?
0: No, not like that. They didn't. They definitely had flame for they had they had uh, man carried or person carried flamethrowers. I'm not sure if they had a flamethrower tank. I'm sure the good people. On Twitter or X, or whatever we call it nowadays, they'll be able to let us know if the Germans had flame-flowing tanks, but they certainly didn't use them the way we did.
1: Okay. 18th of February,
0: 1945. Speeding up. After the dour fighting of the past few days, the tempo of the Cleaver Battle seems to be speeding up, and it's the first Canadian army which is setting the pace. From all the sectors, the progress is described as useful. On the right, the Scottish infantry are forging ahead along the road running parallel to the mass. They have passed through the villages of Afredin and were last reported several miles south of Jenep. In the centre, the advance of two miles as one through three villages and a slight ridge which dominates the Goch-Calcar Road. Both towns are ongoing experience of being liberated by our gunners, a process which has lost none of its delight because the towns are German. The road itself has been cut on one point. Here on Friday night, over 900 prisoners, including parrot infantry were taken by one brigade. In general, the flow of prisoners is increasing. On the other hand, the enemy artillery fire is considerably reduced. Eight German divisions, including the vaunted and frequently vanquished 116th Panzer, have been identified. Once again, only from the Echternach bridgehead, now extended a further half-mile into a network of Siegfried pillboxes, is an activity reported. The 3rd Army has thereby gained a viable stretch of high ground overlooking the next River Valley. So it's all going on then? It is all going on, and it's just starting to open up a little bit. I mean, the first part of Operation Veritable was really not very good at all. It was very slow, very plodding. The traffic jam was one of the longest traffic jams ever recorded. That was when three or four divisions were trying to move down one road. Mm-hmm. and The Germans had flooded the Rhine. And so the, all the areas around the north and the wet and the east part of the, the the area were flooding. So people were having trouble, trouble moving. And of course, we talked already about the towns being bombed, so that the the, the divisions couldn't actually move in and out of the towns. Um, so it's just starting to open up now. But interestingly, this is recorded on the 18th of February. Yeah. And what happens on the 18th of February is what I mentioned on the introduction to the episode, where the 52nd Low Division get ground to a grinding halt mm. at Afford and Woods. Um, and they can't move any further. In fact, there's no will to move any further. They just haven't got the power to get across the open land and clear the other forest to the south of it. So it's kind of moving in different places, um, but it also certain parts of it are are slowing up.
1: I think I think what's interesting for me here is if you read this in isolation this this just this article in isolation yeah. you wouldn't get the impression of a manic battle with artillery firing yeah. and this what you get the impression of is is the allies heading east and picking up hundreds and hundreds of prisoners as they go yeah. Yeah. that's it
0: yeah, exactly. And and the fighting is very, very intense. And and to be fair, 52nd fighting is only a couple of days of really intense fighting. But the divisions that have been clearing the towns of Cleva and Gough, and Gough especially, so um, divisions like the 43rd Wessex Division, uh, the 15th Scottish Division, they really, really have some tough fighting in it, and they're taking lots and lots of casualties. And eventually, when okay. the Canadians break out of their part, and they head for something called the Hochwald, which is a large ridgeline, they really, really do come come stuck again by, by the Germans, who are well dug in.
1: Okay, so progress, but but not all done. At a
0: very high cost. 18th of January,
1: 1945. Land of the Setting Sun. And I don't know whether to read this straight or to include all the tro- tropes and stereotypes. As long as you
0: don't do the accents, Merrin. As long as you don't do the accents, <laughs> I think we'll be all right.
1: Okay, all right. Three great American fleets are singeing the Mikado's moustaches. The first, still cruising 500 miles off the Japanese mainland, has, according to Tokyo, for the second day, sent off wave after wave of carrier planes in a six-hour pounding of naval and shore installations. The Jap Navy, possibly emulating the Italians, have remained in harbour. The second, with two battleships, continues to bombard the Bonins, and may have carried out landings. While the third is silencing the guns of Corregidor.
0: Uh, I, I wonder if the writer of that had had a wee drink.
1: <laughs> I think he'd had one or two. I don't, don't even he? know
0: what he's trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say, the 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 American naval battle in the Pacific is not my strong point, point um, and I have to say, after reading that article, I'm none the wiser. Me neither. And finally, we go to this week's thought for the day from the 18th of February 1945. There is no surer way for men and for nations to show themselves worthy of liberty and to fight for its preservation. Hull's 17 points.
1: So you know who Hull was, don't you? Oh
0: well, yes, Rod Hull, the guy with the emu, isn't it? No. Who's Hull? I have absolutely no idea who Hull was.
1: So, so Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State who was put into place by Roosevelt in 1933. He was the longest-serving Secretary of State. He served until November 1944. I mean, Stability is good, but hitching your wagon to the same horse for that amount of time perhaps not quite as not quite as sensible. In 1945 he got the Nobel Peace Prize, Prize for organizing or helping to organize the United Nations. But anyway, in March 1944 he issued a 17 point statement covering off the US's foreign policy to date because there'd been a lot of burbling about the end of the war coming up and people not knowing where they stood and what was going to happen next and and what the US's approach was going to be to widespread enemy action still going on and and complete unrest after a war was over. What he did was he he pulled together a 17-point rehash of his previous statements and speeches. It did not go down particularly well. His first point was um, that the America's paramount aim was to defeat its enemies as quickly as possible. And then there were things like, we believe in international cooperation and there'll be no jumping the gun and assuming that everybody's guilty. And, and we all support international courts of justice And each government. It was all fairly logical stuff. But, but I don't think this... This um, this sentence comes from that speech. In fact, it's not even a case. I don't. I've tracked it down. It comes from a speech he made in 1942, uh-huh. and it was a, it was an address that was titled "What America Is Fighting For," my address to the nation. It was 23rd of July 1942, and we can listen to it. There is no sure way for men and for
0: nations to show themselves worthy of liberty and to fight for its preservation in any way that is open to them, against those who would destroy it for all. It's, I mean, it's always amazing to hear people's speech on this thing. You know, you, you, you hear the names and you see the names, and somebody I've mm. never heard of, and you actually hear them talking. Uh, he's not the most inspiring speaker, I'm going to be honest. Um, no. but, but But you know what? It's actually quite interesting to hear somebody that, that's printed in the Lowlander.
1: It is Indeed. Well, on that note, I think we'd better leave it there for this week, don't you?
0: I think that's a good idea, yeah.
1: All right, I'll see you next time.
0: See ya. bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Acheson and Merrin Walters. This was a Hellish Good production. And now we go to the classified football results for the week commencing the 12th of February, 1945. English League North Cup Accrington 3, Blackburn 2 Aston Villa 6, Walsall 1 Bolton 2, Liverpool 1 Bradford 5, Leeds 2 Cardiff 4, Bristol 2 Chester 3, Crewe 3 Everton 6, Southport 0 Grimsby 5, Rotherham 0, Halifax 0, Oldham 2, Huddersfield 3, Manchester City 1, Hull 3, Barnsley 0, Leicester 2, Derby 2, Lincoln 5, Sheffield Wednesday 3, Lovells 4, Bath 2, Manchester United 2, Bury 0, Mansfield 4, Chesterfield 3, Middlesbrough 2, Gateshead 3, Newcastle 3, Darlington 1, Northampton 8, Coventry 1, Nottingham Forest 1, Notts County 4, Preston North End 2, Burnley 1, Rochdale 3, Blackpool 6, Sheffield United 0, Doncaster 4, Stockport 4, Tranmere 3, Stoke 8, Port Vale 1, Sunderland 6, Hartlepool 2 Swansea 5, Aberamom 2 West Bromwich 4, Birmingham 0 Wolverhampton 4, Wrexham 1 York 2, Bradford City 2 English League South Cup Brighton 6, Millwall 2 Charlton 2, Luton 1 Crystal Palace 1, Chelsea 1 Fulham one, Brentford nil. Portsmouth two, Arsenal four. Other match: Royal Navy nil, Army two. Scottish League South: Hearts two, Albion one. Dumbarton three, Rangers six. Celtic two, Falkirk one. Adrianians one, Hibernian one. Morton one, Hamilton two. Motherwell two, Saint Mirren nil. Partick Thistle 2, Thirlaneric 6 Queen's Park 2, Clyde 0 Scottish League North East. Rangers 2, Dundee 5 Arbroath 3, Hearts 2 Falkirk 1, East 5, 3 Dundee United 6, Dunfermline 3 Aberdeen 8, Wraith 0 and this concludes the classified football results of the week commencing the 12th of February, 1945.
1: It's an interesting, actually, at the bottom, the rugby union, um, j- just genuinely interesting. You yeah. go everything from Royal High School, oh, yeah. Sonians, to RAF, to South African Service, Aldershot Service, WASP. There's some variation there, isn't there?
0: I'm convinced that somebody's just made some names up there and put some yeah, numbers it's next it's to like
1: them. This is like Man City playing Quick Fit's best outfit, isn't it?
0: Yes, <laughs> probably to the same standard as well.
1: <laughs> they went in there and they just saw the bloody Germans off
0: way.